This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Evran Savcı, Assistant Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Yale University. We'll be talking about her book, Queer in Translation, Sexual Politics Under Neoliberal Islam, published by Duke University Press in 2021. This book couldn't be timelier as students and activists across Turkey continue to resist the closing of LGBT organizations on campuses, leading to trials and arrests. Before we start, We extend our solidarity to them and hope our discussion will shed light on the complex gender politics of gender in Turkey and beyond. With that being said, thank you very much, Dr. Savcı, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Aliza. So at the New Books Network, we like to start by learning a little bit about our guests. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you conceived of this project? What led you to write this book? Uh, so I'm a sociologist by training. Um, I received my PhD in sociology at University of Southern California in 2011. Um, and I have attended another PhD program. So I transferred from University of Virginia sociology to University of um, Southern California sociology. So I have sort of, I've been trained in two, two different sociology departments and I was quite interested in feminist and queer studies um, as a graduate student. I did a certificate, like a graduate certificate in gender studies. And USC, when I arrived there, had a number of um, scholars in queer studies who I could take classes with. So that is, I would say, when my interest in queer studies started taking shape more um, kind of profoundly beyond what I was reading on my own. I was definitely going to write about Turkey. I was going to write about home. And I wasn't so sure, though, at the beginning about, like, I had a hard time conceiving of a project, to be very honest. I was um, interested in the intersections of gender, sexuality, um, the state, and the nation. And I was very inspired by a lot of writing um, in, in those fields. And I wanted to write about queer movements and queer politics. So I think at the beginning, I was a little bit shy to do like a 
big gay project, you know. So, so I think I was a little bit timid at the beginning. I was like, maybe I'll do a comparative thing between feminists and LGBT activism, or maybe I'll also look at ultranationalist groups and how they understand nationalism. Oh, but wow. empirically, it wouldn't come. To, I know yet. I did actually have a proposal <laughs> where I would go, um, you know, like uh, look at how basically the large the what how would should we translate this the uh, ultranationalist youth groups oh, that wow. are called uh, gray wolves like how they talked about gender and sexuality and and then i you know my professors very aptly asked me if there are empirical connections between these groups like i was going to look at like three comparative groups and i was like not really i mean maybe some connections between feminists and lgbt and they're like no you have to have some. And these were very non-empiricist faculty members saying you have to have some empirical connection. So I was like, okay, that probably makes sense. And I think I ultimately realized I'm just being a little scared to do an entire dissertation on queer things. And I shouldn't be. There was very little writing on queer anything in Turkey when I started research. Um, and I definitely wanted there to be writing. I was always interested in politics largely, how people come to understand politics, how they think of themselves as politically engaged subjects or not, um, what comes to stand for political engagement or action, which is an increasingly narrowing field in the world, um, increasingly professionalizing field, which is really worrisome to me. So, um, so then I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this project on queer politics. But that was still very vague. So um, when I started doing research, I thought, okay, I'll just go and look at LGBT activist groups because that's going to be the most obvious place to start. Um, and as I started, and I still didn't have a research question. I genuinely, like, this is a terrible thing to admit probably, but I think it's very good for graduate students to hear it. I didn't have a research question. And I ultimately, even though that made the bringing together of the project much harder, it made me open to everything. I was curious about everything. I was following anything and everything that seemed interesting and relevant. Uh, and I wasn't cutting things out of the project because I had this neatly designed thing that was led by one specific question. So, um, you know, I mean, it's not a research question to ask what do queer politics in Turkey look like? That's not enough of a research question. So, um, as you know very well. Oh, so, uh, but then, so, and I know we'll talk more about the specific details and the chapters, but I ultimately located various stories that led me to talk about what, back when I was finishing the dissertation, I called how power operates in Turkey, which was a very vague, again, kind of idea about sort of like statecraft or like nation state projects or, um, uh, and and then ultimately, as I was writing the book, because you asked what led you to write this book, but I initially wrote something very different from the book that led to the book. I wanted to mention these things. So ultimately, as I kept revising, um, presenting, getting feedback on various chapters of the book, the, dessert, the introduction and the framework completely changed, and I started thinking with the concept neoliberal Islam over time. For instance, I don't think neoliberalism, neoliberalism is not in the title. Neoliberalism Islam is not in the title of the dissertation. And I don't think the word neoliberalism actually is mentioned in the entire dissertation, for instance. <laughs> so there was a real, real revamping. And, and things also changed, like between the time I finished the dissertation and the time the book came out, things also changed quite a bit.
Um, with that being said, let's get to the meat of the book a little bit, um, so to speak. Um, one of the main goals of your book is to tackle, in your words, the epistemological bind neoliberal Islam poses to queer studies, which, you know, as you mentioned, emerged way after the inception of this book. Um, so could you speak a little bit about the tension between neoliberal Islam and queer studies that you came to observe? And how does queer in translation address this epistemological bind? Uh, yeah, so... In the book I talk about, uh, I sort of briefly, as I synthesize the debates, I say neoliberalism is an object of critique in queer studies and Islam is an object of rescue. And here, here is how I see the field um, taking shape. And I will also quickly say um, that, you know, my writing, I think, is very much also inspired by my teaching and what I found to be possible to teach and impossible to teach. So, for instance, the, the way in which neoliberalism and Islam cannot be um, uttered together for me was also very much kind of embodied in the fact that I couldn't teach a course that would bring these. I, I teach two separate courses. One of them is called Gender, Sexuality, and Islam. And the other one is called Neoliberalism and Sexuality. And, and, to, and in fact, like I, I think that, you know, if and when my my students read the introduction, at least they're going to see how these two things could not be brought together because there was this real epistemic kind of dead end. So here's what I mean by neoliberalism as an object of critique and Islam as an object of rescue. The way in which um, queer studies scholarship and its critique of neoliberalism has emerged is um, usually um, neoliberalism in these studies is imagined to be situated in US and Western Europe. And the emphasis of the critique is on the normalizing effects of neoliberalism on previously radicalized queer politics and subjects. So we see the emergence of, you know, affluent, respectable gays and lesbians who want to get married and have children and have beautiful homes and, you know, serve in the army, etc. This is especially the U.S. Um, example. Um, and these, uh, so there are critiques of that. And these affluent and normative, homonormative gays and lesbians also, uh, they don't want to just be recognized um, for their um, kind of significance as contributing citizens. And they don't just want rights, they also want protections. So it's not... Uh, securitize, securitization mode and in those critiques usually that Islam and Muslims as kind of figures that are evoked um, in the scholarship so uh, in a way because Islam is also understood uh, in the context of US empire and neocolonialism and neo-imperialism as these things are centered in studies um, Muslims are also usually imagined as minorities, immigrants, you know, um, and and the analyses we have ha have kind of talked about rising Islamophobia in Europe and the West, how Muslims are positioned as deeply homophobic and transphobic, which has then you know justified um, the wars against an occupation of 
Muslim-majority countries, in the eyes of some LGBT subjects in um, in America, in Western Europe. So, so these works that kind of focus on homonormativity and homonationalism that's on the rise um, in the West always position Islam and Muslims First of all, very figuratively, like the, these are not usually ethnographic studies that um, look at where Muslim subjects themselves fall in this picture, but they're interested in the discursive appropriation of an allegedly deeply homophobic Islam in this, um, you know, neo-imperial moment. So, so then I was like, wow, like it looks like Muslims can are only the victims of neoliberalism, if, even if by extension, but never the agents. And that's absolutely not true for the case of Turkey. But going back to the teaching point too, I think that there was a moment when I was teaching gender, sexuality, and Islam, and of course, when I'm teaching that course, it's a course I have enjoyed teaching tremendously, but there was a moment, um, I don't know if this was when I was teaching it as a postdoc or at my first job at SF State, but there was a moment I realized I could not teach this course in Turkey. It would make no sense in Turkey because it's like the texts in it are so worried about um, a particular kind of modernity as neo-imperialism that is subjugating people all over the world that, that those are not the direct worries of people at home, for instance, like the frameworks of homonormativity or homonationalism or Islamophobia. Islamophobia is such a tricky thing to talk about in Turkey. I don't think it's pointless. I don't think we shouldn't talk about it, but it is right now, especially, it is not in the, you know, um, in the list of priorities of queer or otherwise progressively politicized groups. So, so I, I was like, it's, you know, it, it's interesting. I couldn't teach this stuff in Turkey because it reimagines Muslims as minority and immigrants only. I think some things would be interesting, but an entire course on it called Gender, Sexuality, and Islam would have to talk about other things. Of course, this also has a lot to do with what's available in English language to teach in the U.S. Academy, too. Um, but... So the, the double bind I was seeing both in my teaching in terms of what I could assign and that there couldn't be a way in which I could talk about queer politics being critical of neoliberalism and neoliberal Islam in Turkey. Like there was not enough work that I could anchor my own work in. Um, and, and then I don't know I guess I kept thinking about why why are these discussions happening so separately like why is the discussion um, on the critique of neoliberalism happening in one corner and the discussion on Islam only in the framework within the framework of Islamophobia and homonationalism happening in another corner and they're not speaking to each other because in Turkey we have a moment where Islam and neoliberal capitalism are coming together very forcefully and something needs to be said about that but there is no room literally to say that because of the particular ways in which current paradigms are positions um, in current queer studies so part of what the book tries to do is sort of to pry open those paradigms expose their um, built-in presumptions a little bit and to, to say is there a space to think about this case that doesn't really fit into the existing paradigms. 
So it's, in that sense, I think it's a very, you know, classic, even though I don't think my, myself as a classic sociologist, it's a bit of a classic sociological move of, that says, like, here's a case that doesn't get explained by any of the existing <laughs> theories. What, how can we think about it? So, so maybe it's a bit like that. Wow, thank you very much for sharing that. And I love learning more about how, you know, you contemplated the translations of teaching and, you know, not only how political language translates across media, but through our practices in academia as well. Um, which brings me to my next question. Um, so, you know, a very fascinating approach in your work that I appreciated was um, your focus on the translation and travel of political language around gender and sexual minorities. Um, and, I don't know, we gleaned a little bit about what motivated that focus, but could you tell us a little bit more about that? And, um, and what do the travels and translations of language offer for our understanding of queer politics under neoliberal Islam? Um, thank you, Anise, for that question. So um, even though I was trained as a sociologist, I've always been very interested in language, and this is one of this is and was one of the reasons I found queer theory so compelling. So I've been very um, curious about how some lives and existences and bodies and politics are rendered possible or impossible through being rendered legible or illegible. Um, discursive mechanisms like that's always been very compelling to me though after many years of I think being maybe too loyal to Foucault I have come to a place where I would like to hope that I've never been orthodox uh, in my relationship to anything including Foucault but I was pretty <laughs> enamored um, he has he has a very very seductive you know um, framework and and I can't see that because my students fall in love with him too it's it's hard not to but then so over the years I um, the intellectual in me that's also deeply interested in the social started to be a little bit frustrated with the discursive emphasis on language which really I think forecloses a lot of things. And it imagines that language works and this discourse works in a particular way. I guess maybe discourse does work in a particular way, but language goes way beyond discourse, obviously. So um, I, I still do understand language also discursively, and I think that's pretty obvious in the book as I track some discourses in, in particular chapters. But in transition studies, I found this um, intellectual like place and a kind of semi-home that historicized language, which was very important to me, and um, and it approached language in a very complex way that allowed allows other scholars, but also allowed me to talk about LGBT politics and queer existence in a way that didn't lock the discussion into the binaries of global versus local, west versus east, colonial versus authentic. Those binaries, I think, are literally only possible if you are have an ahistorical approach. And it's interesting because I don't think that queer studies, um, I mean, queer theory can be ahistorical, but queer studies has so much history of sexuality built into it, including Foucault, 
that um, while sexuality is treated as a historical product, let's say a historical concept, um, the way in which discourse and language are made to work in that theory are not historicized. Um, so in the book, I talk a little bit about how, first of all, by language, most queer studies and queer theory scholars mean English. And, um, and, and then language itself is imagined, I mean, you, you know this very well as an anthropologist, and the cultural sociology also tries to be very mindful of not reifying culture, not treating as timeless, um, and, uh, and a lot of post-colonial study scholars, starting with Said, have emphasized this. So I thought that, you know, why are we treating language so historically so that it can become a marker, like an uncomplicated marker of an ahistorical culture, which is then imagined to be kind of authentic and indigenous, and the only change we can conceive of and we can um, imagine and we can track is some damage, uh, you know, inflicted and some injury inflicted by um, neocolonialism, well, colonialism and imperialism, and then neocolonialism and neoimperialism. And um, so, so transition studies in that sense allowed me to talk about contemporary movements that will use terms like, you know, LGBT, but also other terms that I track and not talk about them, focusing on whether they're authentic indigenous or whether they constitute colonial mimicry. I find that to be such a stagnant and honestly at this point, like, I don't, I don't want to say useless. I think there were a lot of uses to it and I think now we can move beyond it. So, so then I, you know, I talk um, briefly in the introduction about how misguided it would be to treat Turkish, a national language, as a um, local and therefore authentic language. And if gay and lesbian as terms didn't exist in Turkish before, there must be impositions of some, you know, Western epistemic imperialism, um, which then reifies Turkish as an authentic national, uh, not national, authentic local language and erases the works of the nation state in instituting particular languages as official languages and erasing others um, or reducing them to dialect. So, so I think that the historicization of language by translation studies, um, and some of these scholars are actually probably think of themselves as scholars of homolingualism and not necessarily of translation, but they, they have real um, kinship, those, those two fields. I, um, I found them really inspiring and important to break out of the the binaries that I think queer studies get stuck in the moment it moves outside of the so-called West. Um, so I think transition studies like ultimately allows me to argue against understanding national languages as authentic culture and also to show that language is not only discursive but it also works to create social disjunctures like right so when certain terms and certain vocabularies arrive they don't have a singular homogenous effect. People debate these things. People make different meanings out of them. Um, and I think that those debates are what's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about sort of the more, I guess, historical and contextualizing aspects of your work on translation. 
Um, so you wonderfully weave together feminist debates around LGBT rights and the headscarf ban, and you know by bringing these different debates together, you present us you know very capacious concepts like sincerity, cruelty, and support. You know which are concepts that I see doing exactly the kind of work that you just described. Um, and for you, what do these concepts do politically? Um, in other words, how do sincerity, cruelty, and support help us think productively about political alliances and negotiations outside of these binds that you described? So um, in, um, in the chapter where I talk about these um, concepts, I look at the debates which sort of that unfolded more significantly in 2010 but uh, from 2008 onward leading up to that moment in 2010 when the Minister of Family and um, what was it uh, Minister, uh, Minister of Family and the Woman I think it was called <laughs> yeah. I never could have done so in law responsible responsible for the family and the woman um, Minister Aliya Kavaf said homosexuality is an illness and it should be cured. And there were a lot of debates around um, the relationship between Islam and homosexuality. Homosexuality was the mostly used term at the time, though um, some people who made statements about about homosexuality, quote unquote, sometimes seemed to talk about trans people and not, you know, homosexuals. But uh, overall, it was like an LGBT rights versus headscarf rights kind of debate where these two rights were pitched against each other as the AKP government was in the midst of kind of proposing a headscarf opening so that um, women who are the um, turban headscarf uh, can go to public universities wearing their headscarf as well as work at public um, offices. So. In that moment, I talk about potentially missed opportunities for solidarity, as you just mentioned in your question, because instead of, like, a lot of the headscarf activists did utter statements about, like, how they might not be able to say, I support LGBT rights, but they would do um, a lot to stand up against cruelty, against um, gays and lesbians and trans people. But that wasn't enough. Like they want, they there was a demand for a performative "I support LGBT rights" coming mostly from non-queer, non-LGBT um, figures. So it was a I I call it like evoking LGBT rights as a litmus test, um, and and a lot of conversations that could be had. And there were so there are debates that I um, track in the chapter that show that that violence in that moment is understood to be mostly state violence via legal violence, right? So like the like having rights in the law versus not having them. And there's an interesting moment, for instance, where in a TV show, a headscarf activist says, I don't understand why we're talking about LGBT rights. Can LGBT people not go to universities openly? I think they can. And, and there is nobody on that show who says, okay, but violence doesn't just work through laws, it also works through norms. And there could be, you know, much, much deeper conversations about cruelty, was the term um, many people were using, in Turkish. And there could be really 
expansive conversations around, you know, uh, violence and injustice and cruelty not being just legal, but also normative, also social, also economic, etc. And and I think I mean I don't think that moment is ever past. I think those conversations can still be had. And um, and I think that the um, current Bozici protests, for instance, are a really important and promising moment because Bozici students and faculty um, can and do say, you know, we are supporting our LGBTI plus students today the way we supported our students with headscarves back when they needed support. So really not letting this government, um, not let this government monopolize and homogenize the meanings of Islam and what constitutes a proper, acceptable Islamic existence, a pious existence, because many, there are many pious people in Turkey who do not agree at all with the AKP government's understanding of Islam, uh, but they have really um, benefited from such polarization and such casting of you know, the morally upright, pious citizens who are assumed deemed to be AKP supporters, and then the immoral, uh, not religious, in fact, religion disrespecting people. So the um, incidents around that artwork at Bozici was a great excuse, of course, to say, look, we told you that these people don't respect religion, and here they are. Even though, of course, Bozici students insist on having um, real conversations among themselves about what it means to have a piece of artwork that might or might not offend various people's religious sensibilities and what that means, if that's acceptable, under what conditions. Sorry, I diverged a little bit from your question perhaps, but I think that what's happening right now is so um, deeply connected to the conversations and solidarities that weren't had, couldn't be had um, at, and, at that moment when there was a real opening. I think there was a real opening with in 2007, 2000, 2008, especially in the aftermath of the assassination of Ramting, there were so many solidarities that were being cast um, in various ways, including the January 19th platform. So many figures with different political priorities, understandings, um, you know, urgencies were willing to work together because they wanted to stop racist state violence. So I think that there still is a lot of need for that, and there's still a lot of um, opportunity for that. So I'm hoping that that particular story that says maybe we can occasionally not focus on rights, but focus on standing up against cruelty. Maybe we can stop you know, questioning people's sincerity if we're interested in being in political solidarity with them. Like if we already, if we preempt um, certain figures, um, always already as insincere when they have their own democratic rights. Um, I, I don't think that's a good formula for social coexistence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much for bringing it to the current moment. I really appreciate that. Um, another part that I found particularly intriguing about the book it's the one on the translation of honor killings and outness through the cases of Ahmet Yıldız and Ümmü Handarama. 
You show us that news about honor killings, particularly in contexts like Turkey, travel through liberal minoritarian frameworks. So how do travels of language produce such frameworks and what are the limits of thinking through these um, ways? So um, my problem with minoritarian frameworks is um, probably most importantly because they create legible legal subjects who then can argue that they're discriminated against, for instance. So these are subjects recognized by the law as minorities. And um, and I think this is the most kind of limited and limiting version of my, of my um, identity politics. Um, I don't think what's referred to as identity politics at, at, is to be unimportant or divisive or not connected to uh, economic redistributive claims. Um, but, but I think that this is the, the moment it turns to being recognized by the law, it becomes its most limiting version. And um, because it's very, first of all, it's very individual rights focused. It, it can not do a thing about collective organizing and collective reimagining of the world. Um, it continuously reproduces this idea of justice as a personal thing. Um, and it also presumes a kind of subject in the case of gay rights, for instance, a sexual subject that pre-exists the law and um, and is then kind of represented by the law, but the subject as if it pre-exists like the law. And a lot of scholars who I follow, and I agree with that, um, do imagine the law as a discursive site through which subjects are produced. So it's not that gay subjects naturally exist before the law and then they come to the law and the law represents them or doesn't represent them. Uh, subjectivities and minorities are produced by legal juridical frameworks. So um, in the chapter on Ahmed Yildiz's murder, I talk about how certain certain violences, certain inequalities um, are recognized a lot more immediately because they are they fit minoritarian frameworks of individual harm and individual injury or individual death. Um, and, um, and they correspond to an already existing minority subjecthood, like a gay man. Whereas um, there are, like the Umuhan Barama is a bit of a counter figure I use um, to Ahmed, who is a um, single Muslim mother who uh, never engaged in civil matrimony she engaged in islamic matrimony and she's having a hard time getting um inheritance rights for her son and th there is no such and i'm not saying that i i want a world in which there is a minority subject that corresponds to every possible injury i think that the problem is that um this kind of includes inclusion oriented projects will always leave some people out they will leave some people out and they will never shift the center. So some people, you know, I think it's Butler who um, has suggested, I'm pretty sure it's her, like that the logic of inclusion presumes that there are some people who are always already included and they will engage in the act of inclusion. So I find these sort of like minority um, frameworks and inclusion, po inclusion politics really problematic. So in that chapter, I'm not trying to say uh, let's create a minority subject position for you know Muslim single mothers who have not engaged in civil matrimony. 
I am trying to say, let's think about justice and, and injustice outside of these um, minoritarian frameworks um, and also outside of the individual, if we can, the individual subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, another issue you take up is hate crimes. Uh, focusing on trans lives, you argue that hate crimes are not mere translations from Western contexts, but instead they're actively produced through what you call deep citizenship. So could you tell us more about this term and how does deep citizenship help us understand hate crimes beyond you know, something universal or something parochial? Uh, so deep uh, deep citizens is a term that I um, I guess I coined <laughs> I, I made up um, <laughs> departing from the term deep state um, and it's used in Turkey. This was a tricky thing to do because deep state is used literally in the opposite sense in America. It's a um, right wing conspiracy theory about the liberals like having established a deep state in America. So I have a long footnote explaining how that's really different in Turkey. But um, but in the context of Turkey, um, the conversations about deep state, they didn't in they weren't originated in the Susurluk um, accident with the Susurluk accident in 96, but they really solidified and they became like a huge public discourse um, when um, as I explained in the book, there is an accident or or Turkish listeners or listeners from Turkey will know this very well, but maybe others won't. Um, there was a um, very scandalous accident in Susurluk in 96 that exposed, um, because of the people who were in the car, who were found, um, a number of whom were found dead in the car, exposed deep ties between the states, organized crime, and the police force. So representatives of all of these were in the same car. And after... Um, and as the the state and the government was being really questioned about having, you know, representatives, um, well, representatives, I guess, in the same car with a uh, basically mafia hitman, um, the then prime minister Tansu Chidlar said, um, "Both those who shoot a bullet on behalf of the state and who are hit by a bullet on behalf of the state are honorable." So there was a real official condoning of doing violence on behalf of the state and in a frame that did not necessarily say um, of course we're going to sometimes hire hitman to do our dirty work it's it was about citizens who act on behalf of the state with state interests in mind protecting their own nation and their own state they are honorable citizens even if they're shooting a bullet. So I take that logic and expand it onto all those citizens who act with um, state ideologies in mind. So um, they they are hailed by certain state ideologies, they internalize them, and um, I talk about various moments of vigilante violence, but sort of like kind of organized, not one person doing one random thing, but organized mob violence, vigilante violence. Um, I talk about the September 6-7 events. I talk about Madamak events. But um, because I'm writing about trans sex workers in this chapter, I talk about how the violence they were enduring in the hands of the police shifts increasingly in the 90s. 
to like late 90s to violence and 2000s to violence they endure in the hands of vigilantes and we are seeing a huge rise of vigilante violence in turkey today as well and the rest of the world i mean i think um you know to me what happened at capitol hill was really a bunch of citizens acting as deep citizens um the state is of course a bit more complicated there because Um, they were just acting with Trump's orders. But these are people who, and they were really, really surprised afterwards when they were called terrorists, when they were called, like they, they thought that they were doing something right, like they were going to war for their nation. It's that logic. So I think, um, so with, uh, what I try to do then with deep citizenship is to, um, is to say one, mm, a number of, theorists of neoliberalism have suggested that one of the effects of neoliberalism is to concentrate um, poli- the military and state functions of the state in the, um, you know, like, and, and increase them. So one, and like Loic Wakand is one of the um, better known um, theorists who has argued that, but um, when people understand neoliberalism as a particular statecraft, they have emphasized, surely the state has shrunk in terms of its Um, welfare functions. It no longer has uh, or provides the social safety nets that it's used to, but it has increased its police and military functions. Through Deep Citizens, I try to show a case in which that the state doesn't necessarily monopolize the state and military functions, but disperses them. So there's a real almost division of labor between the police and Deep Citizens in terms of who distributes what kind of violence, under what circumstances. And I bring that back to hate crimes because hate crimes are also theorized as this kind of um, queer politics gone wrong way, um, in especially the US and Western Europe where the demand, the imagined demander of hate crime laws is a privileged, usually class and race privileged at least, uh, gay or lesbian, who imagines that the state and the police will protect them. So they demand for hate crime laws because they are so privileged, they can only imagine being protected by the state. Whereas hate crime laws obviously adding more criminal penalties to the criminal code and giving more excuse to the police to detain and arrest people feeds into the prison industrial complex. That's just the gist of the um, existing scholarship and I found it really interesting that trans sex workers who did not trust the state or the police one bit and they had only been persecuted by the state and the police in their entire lives were demanding a hate crime law so I guess the puzzle for me was why like what do they expect to get out of it and in the chapter I argue that they understand um, the logic of terror and the logic of hate to be really connected And they understand hate as almost like a structural affective condition of under neoliberalism. And their demand for a hate crime law is a demand for a recognition of what life under neoliberalism looks like, life under such precarities, life reduced to um, almost bare life where you're supposed to be happy that you're alive even though you're swimming in debt and you don't know how you're going to pay your bills for the next month. So um, so their demand for a hate crime law, I argue, is to make 
visible um, these conditions and to name them. And they also think of hate, um, they think of it as both structural and as deeply connected. Like they, they say, you know, like the hate we all experience is actually the same hate. You know, in this country, Kurdish people experience hate, trans people experience hate, people with headscarves sometimes experience hate. And so it's a, it's a way, I guess it's a way to rethink justice um, a bit more like, affectively. And I found it really um, interesting and promising. So I wanted to um, write about that and really question um, the presumptions built into the current critiques of hate crime law. Well, I'm very glad you did. Um, and, you know, as you show us how trans women wrestle with hate crimes, you introduce us to hopeless activism. Um, what are the potentials and limits of hopeless activism in shaping hate crimes in translation? Um, that's a really great question. I, you know, um, Elisa, I hope I have a satisfactory answer to it. I did think <laughs> about this question, but... Um, um, and the limits maybe we can think about out loud. I'm curious what you think too. So to me, um, it was important. So in you know queer theory and queer studies is really um, invested in pushing back against the normative. Mm-hmm. And again, in the US and in Western Europe, which a lot of this work is produced, um, hope has become one of those very kind of neoliberal, like, you know, these positive thinking, just like, you know, think about pink things and everything will be fine. Um, like, it's a very individualizing framework. Like, you know, like this, this started with, um, I think, around the time when Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book about um, cancer and how um, cancer patients, especially breast cancer patients, are invited to think positively um, as if their health will like improve and um, it is a very very individualizing framework of course like it's your fault like if you're being really uh, moppy about having poor health then you are bringing you know more um, illness onto yourself mm-hmm. almost like very that, that kind of like um, neoliberal it's almost like think positive and a job <laughs> will come to you <laughs> like <laughs> So, so hope is seen as like this, like naive and almost privileged um, space that, um, or a trap to make people believe that um, the solution is an individual solution, and um, you know problems are also not really structural, but they're usually individual. Um, and it was very interesting for me to hear the activists say, and I, I mean, it's one of them that I cite. Um, that hopelessness doesn't necessarily lead to jadedness or nihilism or giving up. Because I think that there, there is a bit of a... Mm, I don't track this in a super detailed way in the chapter, but uh, people who have been critical of the hopeful, of the utopian, of the futuristic, like there's a bit of a tension between um, a tr- uh, sort of sub subfield in queer studies um, of um, that was called the antisocial turn or queer negativity that's about kind of refusing and rejecting the future investing into like this um, crappy future that's designed for the few anyway um, and that's that's a bit more um, 
and that would see hope and anything future related hope is also very future related usually um, to be a naive and kind of um, uncritical position um, but those those are and then there's the more utopian uh, Munoz kind of um, side of queer studies and here I think we have in a way almost something else because like hope these activists are saying, you know, I don't need hope to keep doing what I do. Like, I don't need hope to get up in the morning and to fight for a better world. Like, the fact that, like, I'm hopeless, but I'm still not going to stop. And I'm not going to be um, jaded or nihilist, or I'm not going to give up on the possibility for social change. I think that's, I found that really, really compelling and interesting. And again, I wanted to show that um, I mean, I feel like there there has been historically so many assumptions made about activists in queer studies, but not that many people have studied them um, deeply. And I wanted to show that hopelessness can live side by side with uh, desire for social change and and um, the fact that people are getting up in the morning and continuing the fight doesn't mean that they're naive or privileged or disconnected. Um, they can feel very hopeless and dark and still keep putting in the work. The limits um, of hopeless activism is not something I write about, but I'm happy to think about it with you. I think that maybe part of it is that um, some people do need hope. I think some people do need hope to keep going. Um, some people need to think that um, a better, you know, like a, um, some people need a more hopeful way of imagining social change. Um, and I think some people can probably sustain hopelessness um, and still keep doing the work every day. So in that sense, I don't want to prescribe it as the, you know, the next uh, vanguard <laughs> um, activism, but I wanted to propose that there are other possibilities um, for people who keep pushing the work every day. Um, and I think that this is, I mean, I don't know, I feel like hopeless activism really does capture what's going on in Turkey so much that a lot of people do find it hard to say that they have hope. It feels silly to say they have hope. It feels, you know, naive to say they have hope, but they're not willing to give up. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful angle. I don't know, maybe we'll see a hopeless turn in... <laughs> in our approaches to hope because yeah i mean we work in sort of different parts of um turkey and istanbul and on different things but that's also something that's been very um very visible in my work that like nobody you know really ascribes to these um sort of progress oriented everything will get better understandings of hope but there is something that you know propels people to do something um and yeah, yeah exactly i yeah i mean now that you say that like you know it's i think that there was a real simplistic understanding of like um want, like demanding social change as a version of an it gets better project mm -hmm. and it just doesn't have to be like that now i think black lives matter has really shifted the terrain of how people talk about um, social change and activism because mm -hmm. there is so much respect for the Black Lives Matter movement um, in the U.S. Uh, and um, and I 
I think people are literally hopeful because of that movement. But um, when it came to LGBT um, movements, the it gets better version was what was affiliated with, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, like social change, like in a better future and everything will be better. Just like stick it out, as you said. And people don't have to think like that to still want a different future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's that's wonderful to think about. Um, I yeah, I would have liked to speak about this for <laughs> for much longer, but for the purposes of covering um, sort of the um, methods part of the mobilities and methods series, I'm going to now ask you some questions about your methodology, um, and I want to circle back to the beginnings of your research, um, if that's okay. Uh, and you no, know, you mentioned the undesignability of your project and how you know it didn't necessarily fit disciplinary boundaries. How, um, in many ways, I see that you know your lack of an initial research question maybe set you free to write this kind of book. Um, so, how did this sort of in betweenness uh, shape your methodological choices? So um, thank you, um, Aniza, for this question. So I think like, a few different things come to my mind. Like, first of all, ultimately, I think that um, maybe I experienced the difference between methods and methodology, like mm. the most radically in this project than I had. I mean, I had read about it, obviously. I had read Sandra Harding's work, like, but um, that like kind of distinguishes between method, methodology, and epistemology. But I realized that... Um, you know, so for instance, I use pretty classic, you know, ethnography and in-depth unstructured interview. I call them semi-structured, but they were pretty unstructured in, in many ways. I mean, I had questions, but I let the conversation go wherever it was going because I didn't necessarily imagine, even though I didn't start doing interviews until five and a half months into field work because I didn't, I wanted to first see what to ask. But I... um so I, ultimately, the methods that I use, sometimes I do, like, you know, I treat interviews differently than maybe more um, conventional social scientists might because I don't say, this is what the activist said, and then here are 10 different quotes from 10 different activists. Like, if, <laughs> if anything, I do, I do close readings of interview data as if they're, like, poetry or something in, in some cases. And, and so that is a bit of a maybe different approach to classic methods but for me it's maybe a critical translation approach to interviews maybe maybe yeah i mean i i don't do like a semiotic analysis per se but i still pause and reflect with the interviewee about the complex like really complex things that they're telling me um and those complex things they are able to tell me because i'm not asking simple questions you know there's also that if I was focused on getting some answers to some predetermined questions, I would have not had such rich data. I mean, it was almost like, let's talk about everything, which of course, as you can imagine, is a nightmare when you're trying to decide now what to write about, about all of this, how to summarize it, what to focus on. There's so much I have not used from my interviews. But then I had a world of things to 
to focus, like to choose from, to focus on. The, um, I think that I talk about the undesignability of, of the project, like in that um, appendix, because honestly, the four case studies came together because I decided that they belong together. And I think that, um, and they allow me to tell a particular story. So since I'm not doing a quote-unquote scientific study of LGBT activism where I have a hypothesis about like, you know, do LGBT activists, you know, um, you know, does it, does, does external funding ruin politics or does, you know, I'm not doing anything like that. Like I'm curious about how people think about what's going on in Turkey and how they imagine um, resistance and how these new vocabularies enter conversations with different contingencies make of, of these words and how they sometimes open really interesting conversations and sometimes they foreclose those dialogues. Um, I, it was important for me to let myself just go after anything I wanted. I was like, you know, I have a certain amount of time and I'm not going to just stay with the activists. I'm going to, I mean, in, I didn't look at things that were empirically unrelated. So as I was um, hanging out and um, going to, you know, pride events, demonstrations, bi-weekly um, council, like it wasn't a council, it was like a, um, there was an open to public um, kind of meeting that Monday Istanbul was um, holding. Like as I was going attending these things, the Ahmet Yildiz murder happened. Through that murder, I found out about a completely different um, queer subculture that was not necessarily very politically engaged or didn't think of themselves as politically engaged, but they did have an intersection with activists around this issue. So I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see where this story leads because it's an important story. It takes me to another queer world that's not a directly kind of activist world. Then I was hearing a lot about this women-only club um, that you know some of the activists attended, but they didn't like it, and they um, and they had problems with it. I shouldn't say they didn't like it, but they had problems with the crowd, uh, who they found to be really apolitical. So I was like, let me go see w- what these apolitical crowds are like. And the chapter with trans sex workers came out of the fact that as I was starting my field work. I knew from talking to some activists that there had been a significant trans exodus from Lambda Istanbul, like a bunch of um, trans women had left Lambda Istanbul and had founded their own um, organization that they hoped would be more attentive to trans people's needs and priorities, and that was Istanbul LGBTI. I think maybe it was Istanbul LGBT at the time, and then they added an I. But... um, and I could have worked with that group, but the uh, Ankara-based Pembe Hayat was a little bit more active, and they too had had relationships with larger LGBT groups, and they had departed from them to do a more trans-focused group. So I wanted to see what that um, different political site was going to look like. But again, like if I had made those kind of classic decisions about, okay, I have one site that I'm going to go to, you know, like, once a week, twice a week, whatever, like I'll attend every meeting and this is my group that I'm going to look at and through them I'm going to write about queer politics, it would have been a very, very different kind of project. So because I was interested in the travel of vocabulary and how it lands and what kind of social disjunctures they create, I 
I basically followed this course in a way. I followed the trajectory of these words into stories wherever they led. Um, so instead of having a very well-bounded site, uh, I had, I think, a kind of amorphous discursive site that I tracked as best as I could. And sometimes those sites were literally only in media. They were taken, they were, those were not debates that were taking place in rooms. They were taking place on uh, various media platforms like columns, interviews, TV shows, things like that. I don't know if this answers your question. It, it absolutely does. And I find this you know, approach of following the discourse really fascinating as an anthropologist um, and as we think about fieldwork. Um, I wanted to ask you something that you mentioned again earlier in our conversation. Um, so, you know, often teaching is thought of something that's um, apart from, if not detrimental, to our writing um, as researchers, researchers. And I love how you described it as an internal process to writing a book manuscript. And I was wondering if you could, you know, speak more to like teaching as method or teaching as writing and how that informed your work. I love this question. Thank you. I So, you know, I, I really love teaching. I think it's one of the least alienated labor parts of this job that we do. Um, I think the most being like some really random like committee work or something like is the most alienated probably. And then the least, some of the least alienated. I also really love writing, but I find teaching to be so really like, wonderful in so many ways one of which is so i i love teaching but i don't think of my relationship to my students as in i'm the teacher i have all the knowledge you're the students you're empty vessels i will now deposit all this knowledge into you that's not how i approach teaching at all i think of it as a real conversation with a group of intellectuals who are interested in um, this course and that's why they're taking it and and we're gonna have you know 13 14 weeks depending on sometimes 15 depending on the uh, institution to talk about these issues together and i think that's really special so i think of it as almost like a mini workshop i mean obviously i teach and my students feel like they have learned many things both from the readings and from me but i do um treated as a space where we think together so i'm in some ways workshopping my thoughts like i ask them questions and then sometimes it's good to get pushback from students i remember for instance my i think it was my first semester teaching gender sexuality and islam and i don't think i had quite yet developed my um you know kind of the, the slightly critical distance that i have from some of that scholarship now um, and one of my students asked in a really genuine way, um, the student asked towards the end of the semester, maybe it was my second year teaching it, um, like, I really understand and appreciate all these readings, but is there, is there a world in which, like, even, like, a single Muslim woman might feel oppressed? And I found this to be such an offensive question. I was like, oh, my God, this is such an Islamophobic, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I didn't treat my student like this of course because <laughs> I have thankfully enough I think, pedagogical like backbone to 
But I did, I asked other questions back, but I was frustrated with this question. I, I, I didn't even think it was a appropriate question to ask. And then I had to question why I think that. Why is this not an okay question to ask? And how is the particular paradigm through which gender and sexuality studies work that I'm teaching, obviously I could have taught other things too, uh, is unfolding, that's creating this question in a student. Like, is this does this seem like such a kind of um, rigid paradigm that doesn't leave possibilities outside of itself? Um, so, so that was a, and then I think after, soon after that, I thought to myself, wow, like this, this class wouldn't have made sense to teach in Turkey because it's just like Islam is so much more complicated than this in Turkey. Like here, it's like this very simple, like victimized thing, but it's, it's not like that in Muslim majority countries. So, so I take my students' questions very seriously. I find teaching, if, if I can teach courses that directly relate to my um, research, I find it to be a very lucky moment where I can think together with students about things. And, and you know, like when you teach a class, you're putting readings in conversation and, and they take a life of their own when they're in conversation with. So I sometimes use a reading um, in multiple classes, but it'll be in conversation with a different group in one class and with in a different conversation, like so, it'll talk to neoliberalism bit in one class, it'll talk to transnationalism bit in another class. So it's interesting to also see with them what work different pieces can do in different contexts. And I think that teaching usually exposes the boundaries of a field a little bit and the blind spots of a field. So you, if you do a good sort of survey of what's going on in the moment through a course, um, it's inevitable to see what's not being done, what's not being said, how much of an echo chamber sometimes there is, how much, you know, um, what what seems to generate a lot, like uh, what work seems to generate a lot more work like itself, like it's like echoes, and what work doesn't. So, so sorry, this is a very long answer, but but there are so many ways in which I find teaching really inspiring and really to be a very um, kind of fruitful intellectual space. Wow, that is wonderful. Um, my last question is, what are some new questions or projects you're grappling with, either you know, in your writing or research or teaching or you know, all of them intertwined? <laughs> so... Um... I do have this new book project that I still haven't properly started to research um, because um, that's what you're asking, right, I say, like new questions, new projects. So um, it is, so after writing about queer politics in Turkey um, and especially after that Ahmet Yildiz chapter and what that illuminated for me, I wanted to think about other sexual others of the Turkish Republic um, and, you know, in fact, um, homosexuality has never been criminalized in Turkey. Um, trans stage performance has been banned for a while, but otherwise transness or um, gender nonconformity or cross-dressing or things like that have not been criminalized either. But, um, but other things have been either criminalized or heavily discouraged, like polygamy, Islamic matrimony. It's not, obviously it's not criminalized, but you're not you're not supposed to have Islamic matrimony before you have an official 
engagement and or like just by itself. Um, and also cousin marriages. So I was interested, uh, I mean, not I was, I am interested in this new project um, in how um, how the Republic distinguished itself as a civilized and new political formation from the um, imperial and religious Ottoman past and how, what role um, gender and sexuality played in that. There is also quite a bit of like the, the rise of the kind of um, nuclear family a little bit and the heteronormative couple, a real heteronormalization of public spaces, of course, um, you know, um, Western style dances that are kind of like a man between a man and a woman. Like, so, so homosocial spaces really disappear, which also I think is part of the story. But I'm interested in both the history of the um, production of um, heteromonogamy as the um, desirable civilized form of sexuality and kinship in the Republic and the what I call failures of modernization that exist today. So like there are lots of people who practice, um, you know, are, or who are engaged in these forms of um, intimacy and kinship. So, so that's one project. There is also something else that I'm working on that I'm very excited. Um, me and my colleague, Rana Jalil, who are, who's at UC Davis, um, just got a special issue accepted, like a special issue proposal accepted for South Atlantic Quarterly. Um, we're still finalizing the contributors, so I won't talk about them, but it's, I'm very excited about it. And the special issue will ask something that we both have been talking about for a long time and wanting to, wanting to talk, like, Think about, write about, do something about, which is um, decentering. Um, I don't know if this is going to come out. Like, so I was going to say decentering queer of color, but this is what I mean by that. Like how um, queer and LGBT has gotten a lot of critique when it's um, used kind of universally all around the world, but queer of color seems to be um, used quite globally as well to designate um, lots of. I guess, queer subjects that somehow are imagined to stand outside of whiteness, but they do have complicated relationships um, to that. And whiteness is a very particular U.S. racial category and regime, but um, the logics of whiteness and of color are traveling um, in kind of globalizing ways. So we, we want to rethink queer of color critique and racial capitalism outside of the US and Western Europe and think about what questions of caste and um, like sect and other other um, kind of formations do to this and what happens when we think of racial capitalism um, alongside of but also uh, in different registers than the um, transatlantic slave trade which is kind of the the story of um, racial capitalism in the US. So, so sort of transnationalizing queer of color and transnationalizing um, racial capitalism, uh, I would say, is the goal of the special issue. So these are a couple of things that I've been thinking about and I, am, I will continue to think about for a while. Uh, these sound wonderful. I'm really looking forward to um, seeing the end product. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Savjo, for joining us and your insights. I am Aliza Arjan. This discussion of queer and translation 
Sexual Politics Under New Liberalism, published by Duke University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. Thank you.